Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Sherry Altergaard, the Chief Experience Officer at the CX Edge. Welcome to our first podcast of 2021. We cannot be starting this year off with a more exciting guest. I'm very excited to welcome Gary Moore. Gary Moore is, is known in the industry. He retired in 2018. Uh, he was president of Material Handling Equipment Company, which he sold in 2006. He was also the former president of Mejita in 1997. And since then, he's been a speaker, author, consultant, and trainer. So welcome, Gary. We're very excited to have you today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> so we always like to start these out just getting to know our guests a little bit better. And I'm always super interested in how people got involved in this industry. I'm sure you've heard before, nobody goes to high school or college thinking they're going to be a part of this industry that a lot of people don't know of. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about how you got started on your journey in material handling? Yeah, Sherry. My uh, undergraduate education was at General Motors Institute, now Kettering University, and I co-opted, uh, which means I worked as a junior engineer or as a gopher at GM assembly plants while I was, uh, while I was getting my education. And to get out of a GMI with a degree, you had to write a thesis. And my thesis was on forklifts in, in the plant, how to convert from internal combustion to electric. I was an electrical engineer, I almost electrocuted myself three times. And I thought, well, electricity may not be my thing, but I kind of like forklifts. So after I got out of Purdue uh, with a degree in management, um, there was a job posting with a forklift company. At that time, Alice Chalmers. It sounded like a good fit to start and it was, so I started. Wow, that must have been one of the first papers on forklifts, I think. I've <laughs> still got it if you need it, so. <laughs> we might have to refer to that. Um, so you sold your company in 2006, and then instead of retiring in 2007, you wrote a book specifically for material handling. Um, objective-based selling, how to sell more material handling equipment. Um, so I love the concept of what you talk about in objective-based selling. Can you explain that methodology a little bit further? It came about as I watched a lot of good salespeople do different things, but they there was not a lot of consistency. And so I thought if we had a model that sort of overarched and told about um, the real process, which is really sale of capital, business to business sale of capital equipment, that perhaps we could have a model that we could refer to. And the tendency I saw of material handling salespeople, especially those involved in selling the equipment, is to try to tell the customer everything they can about their equipment. My forklift is better than your forklift. My conveyor is better than their conveyor, and so on. And what I realized is most customers really didn't want to know that much about the stuff forklifts or whatever, that what they wanted to know about was how this equipment and the process was going to help them meet their objectives. And what I learned was that customers have really two sets of objectives. First are the business objectives, so better order picking, lower maintenance costs, uh, better rate of return, whatever. But they also have personal objectives, things like they want to get ahead in their company, or particularly they want to do business at the capital equipment level with people they can trust. And so the idea was to put together a model that showed how instead of just telling the customer everything there is to know about the equipment, 
let's learn what the customer's objectives are, business and personal, and then show the customer how they can meet their objectives by acting on our proposal. There are four key elements to objective-based selling. And I learned these essentially from a lot of good salespeople and then synthesized this into a model. And the first is open-ended questions. And objective-based selling teaches about 100 open-ended questions to learn what the customer's objectives are, their parameters, what their decision-making process is. I don't like decision-maker. We use terminology like decision influencer because in capital equipment, almost always more than one person is involved in the decision. And so it's, a, it's about 100 open-ended questions. Of course, you don't ask them all at once and you don't ask them rapid fire, but, but you need to learn what's happening with the customer. Second is you need to build personal professional relationships because selling even at the capital equipment level, maybe especially since trust is such a big deal, uh, the relationship is important. And it's not necessarily a friendship, but it's a personal, professional relationship. Third is to create a sales proposal that sells instead of just quoting. Many material handling um, proposals are really just quotes. List the equipment, the price, tell everybody how good we are. Instead, we create a proposal that sells and sells to people we can't meet in meetings we can't be in because often, I would say most of all, as the bigger uh, proposals, the bigger projects, the, the, the decision is not made when you're in the room. It's not like, well, do you want it red or blue? Okay, I'll take red, close. It's a much more complicated situation and you often aren't there. Who you're dealing with says, well, I gotta get with my committee or I'll get back to you or gotta talk to my boss. And so what speaks for you in those meetings you can't be in to people you may never meet is your proposal. And the fourth thing is to conduct a customer scrum meeting where you can, and if you can't, then to review the proposal with the customer step-by-step. Step. So that's sort of where objective-based selling came from, and those are the four key elements. Open-ended questions, building personal professional relationships, creating proposals that sell, not just quote, and conduct customer scrum meetings or proposal reviews. I love that, and I think you hit it right on the head and a lot of mistakes that I've seen and some great things that I've seen people do. Um, I've always been really impressed with this industry and their ability to build uh, relationships. Um, I think as opposed to some other industries, they're some of the strongest relationships with um, company and clients that I've ever seen at some companies. So I think that's awesome. Um, going back to, I thought it was really interesting what you talked about with the quoting. And, and I, I agree with you. I think it's a mistake that a lot of companies make in having these sort of what I'd call canned proposals that you just plop in a number or a spec and everybody gets that same sort of thing. So how do you keep a certain level of brand consistency, but also make the quotes as personalized as possible? Well, first you never use the word quote, Sherry, because a quote is a price and the low quote gets it. So we, we, we never use the word quote or bid. Those are, those are an anathema to us. We use the word proposal because a proposal is a way of doing business, whereas a quote's a number and a delivery. By the way, I suggest you never put delivery in your initial proposal. Why is that? Well, first of all, uh, it's gonna change by the time they buy it. And second, um, 
you want them you want to engage with them so if you don't see the uh, if they don't see the delivery which everybody wants to put on a on a quote three to five weeks well is it three or five or what is it really so you just leave that off because you want to engage them in conversation and if they don't see it they're going to ask that question so the way you but the way you personalize the way you build your brand is first of all you there's a there is a template for the uh, objective based selling proposal and you can do it in one page, you can do it in three pages, which I call the sandwich, or multiple pages for a large project. And of course, at some point you have a sales pitch, but you only have the sales pitch, which is the brand thing you're talking about, after you've identified their objectives and fed them back to them. You start your proposal after a letter of transmittal, which is personal, one page signature at the bottom, because that's personal. And then uh, as we understand them, your objectives are, and, and you list their objectives. You're feeding back to them what they've learned. And then you have parameters. You get five points just for using the word parameters. That's the numbers, the capacity, the size of the box, whatever it is. And then you essentially say, based on these objectives and these parameters, we recommend the following. And then you do the sales pitch after that. Why yours is best. You always have a list of references other people you've dealt with on this type of proposal. So the brand really is in the proposal itself, which is a professional document, as opposed to a quote, by the way, we never use that word, I think I mentioned that, uh, instead of a quote with, um, with how great your stuff is. So it's the document, in a sense, is your brand because you're building confidence as you work through the proposal. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. We've I, I've heard before that nobody actually wants to buy a forklift. Everybody just wants to move their product from A to B. And they don't care how they do that, and they don't care what color it is that, that moves it in that perspective. But their objective is to move it. And, and Terry, we're not just, I mean, my uh, I started out in the forklift industry, but I ended up with conveyors and loading dock equipment and systems. So this is not just a, a format or a model for forklifts, even though that's sort of where I started. It's for um, any business-to-business -business sale with capital equipment, particularly material handling projects. So can we go back for a second to, you had mentioned scrum meetings. Um, mm -hmm. Scrum is not a term that I have heard before. Can you can you talk a little bit more about what the, what the purpose of those are? Yeah, well, first it comes. First of all, I stole this, and uh, I stole this from the Wright Height Corporation, which we represent at the loading dock company. I learned this from them. I learned a lot of this from good salespeople, and they were good salespeople. It comes from rugby, and in rugby, as opposed to our football, everybody sort of piles up, and the ball's under there in the middle somewhere, and who knows what's going on under there? God, we don't want to know. But at some point somebody comes out with the ball and everybody runs in that direction so that's a mental image for a meeting where you get as many customer decision influencers together as you can today that might be a scrum meeting and you get them in a in a meeting and you don't give a sales pitch in that meeting you facilitate a meeting to help them make a decision to buy your equipment or to learn what's going on in a perfect world i never lost the job no matter what the size where I got two scrum meetings. The first one at the beginning of the project, the bigger the project, the more important. And that is where you learn their objectives and you learn the relationships between the people and you ask questions like, 
What is your decision-making process? Who besides yourself will be involved in this project? What are your primary considerations? Of those 100 questions, you, you pick the right ones. And then you have a second scrum meeting with your proposal whenever that's time to present the proposal. And, and at that meeting, you can almost close the deal. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. But a scrum meeting is where you get as many decision influencers together as possible and hope facilitate a meeting to come out of there all going in the same direction, and that's your direction. By the way, the scrum meeting may involve more people than just the salesperson on your end. It may involve your maintenance guy or your service manager or your um, software guy or whatever it is. But you, it's that mental image of getting everybody together, you facilitate a process, and then you all come out running in the same direction, hopefully your direction. I like that. I, I, might, I might steal that from you. I like the scrum meeting um, concept. So staying in sales, but switching gears a little bit. I mean, obviously our environment is different now than it was in 2007. Um, but then on top of just a, a change in culture and environment, we have the current pandemic. And I think in the world of sales, a lot of companies had to shift some sales strategies in 2020 and most likely through most of 2021. How have you seen the pandemic? Do you think the pandemic will really shift sales strategies in the future? Well, of course it will. Um, I, of course, can't see every way that's going to do that. But I, I have a couple of ideas. One, your online presence as a company and as an individual becomes ever more important. I mean, we back in the good old days, I mean, we'd go out to, uh, we'd take our salespeople out to a warehouse uh, area where there were a bunch of warehouses and just go door to door and find out who was in charge and, you know, who we ought to be talking to. Well, of course, you can't do that. Probably couldn't do that 10 years ago. But your online presence becomes your company's presence. And it's the company as well as the individual. I'm not big into social media, but you have to be into LinkedIn and you have to choose very carefully how you're going to present yourself digitally. A second way, of course, I think the pandemic is going to mean this trust thing is even more important. Uh, that people, if they can't meet you or can't, you know, go with you to the restaurant or whatever you do to develop those relationships in the past, you have to learn how to develop relationships in a different way. And I, there's a couple of ways I see. One is communication. And you have to understand how your customer wants to communicate. That's always been the case, but now it's more important. Do they want to text? Do they want to do email? Do they want to do a meeting like this? Well, you better get your technology straight. I struggled with it a little bit today. I, I've never done a go-to meeting. I've done Zoom meetings. I've done FaceTime. I've done whatever the Microsoft team thing is. This is my first go-to meeting. So you better get the technology straight and you better have multiple technologies. More importantly, you better understand your customer's technology. Another uh, little key thing in communication is there are uh, two types of responders. There are instant responders and leisurely responders. I'm an instant responder. Somebody, I never end the day without emails returned or uh, text returned or whatever. But there are some people who take two, three days, four days, maybe they don't respond at all and you have to bug them a little bit. If you're an instant responder and they aren't and you're too aggressive, then uh, then they may they may not like that. They may not want to do business with somebody they perceive as too aggressive. So it's a subtle thing, but you sort of have to watch the communication style, not just the technology, 
but the but the communication style of, of the people you're dealing with. Another, th I think it makes the proposal that much more important because it's not going to be a paper proposal. It's going to be a, probably a Word document or something of that nature, a PDF. Again, you better understand the technology. Can they open it? Is it just a quote or is it a proposal? Do they know it's multiple page and they have to work, scroll down to see the whole proposal? So your communication style and techniques become much more important and you have to pay attention to it. Just a quick word about the Zoom meetings. Um, Mahita has a great uh, has a great podcast or webinar, I guess, or video or something. A woman who at the last convention, I don't remember her name, but she did a this virtual convention and she did a whole thing on uh, Zoom meetings, how to be effective. Mm -hmm. One up is just how you face yourself. I mean, you're very good there. I'm sort of semi-good in terms of in the middle of the screen, your background, the lighting. I mean, those things are important. But another subtle thing is, particularly if it's a multiple Zoom meeting or whatever, um, people tire quickly um, uh, of these things. And so you've got to be watching the signals. And if you're getting bored, they're getting bored, you know, you shut this thing down <laughs> or call, ask them a question and force them to re-engage. Because people, uh, you said right at the start of this, that uh, you know, 20, 30 minutes, people uh, don't want to listen much more than that. Same's true of a, of a sales call. And so um, it's probably less chit chat and more, um, let's, and you got to watch what's happening to the other person. And if, if, if they're not paying attention, then you either got to draw them in or get out of there. So those are a few things I see. Do you think, and you mentioned that's one of your four keys is, is building relationships. Do you think doing meetings via Zoom as opposed to in person is going to impact people's ability to build relationships in the same capacity? Well, absolutely. Um, it's a whole different ballgame. It's one reason why even in uh, today's world, I still send some things by, um, by snail mail, priority mail usually or something. Because now, in addition to all this, you know, you, they have to open a physical document, and and there is something to that. So even if you're sending a, um, and you and you can write personal notes in there, you know, uh, I mean, you can you can send a paper copy of the proposal, and then on there write a note or send a card or something. That um, you have to find some way to connect on a personal level. But the biggest thing still is doing business the way the customer wants to do business and if they want to chit chat then you chit chat and if they want to get right to the point you get right to the point i mean when i was president of the company people would come in and say hey how about those broncos you're all ready for christmas and it turned me off immediately because that was i wanted to get right to the point and but some people i mean i had to be told sometimes gary back off my customer they want they want to get to know you first so even if it's Zoom or however it is to build a relationship, you have to see how the other person wants to communicate at what pace they want to communicate and find some way to personally connect. Awesome. Well, thank you. And I, I want to end on um, a question that I, I've gotten a lot from listeners and especially some of our younger listeners that might be new to the industry or in middle management. And a lot of times there's a big um, age and experience gap between some of those people and the leaders of the company. Um, so what advice do you have to help others embrace your ideas that you may have? 
And I'm getting a little, I'm not in a company now, but I'm getting a little bit of that experience directly. I'm mentoring a young man. In fact, that's my next uh, FaceTime after this is a young man who's 17 in high school uh, through a mentoring program who wants to, um, who wants to be the first in his family to go to college. And so um, he's 17 and I'm not. So, so I've had to learn, I had to learn how to, how to relate there. Well, on a, on a corporate level first, I'll just say a lot of it has to do with um, modeling the behavior you preach. You know, you sort, you do, I mean, walk the talk has a real meaning. And so, for example, if you're, if you're preaching a sales proposal and now you're, you're take, going with a younger person out to do one or do one on Zoom or whatever, you got to do it the way you preached. <laughs> and, and, you, and you don't pick on people. I mean, sales can be a real negative thing. I mean, this is one of the things. So you, you have to be positive. That doesn't mean you don't have standards. But, you know, you, in sales, the old saw is you get told no five times for every time you get told yes. Whatever the numbers are, you get told more no than yes, usually. And so as a leader, you, you don't want to be negative. You don't want to reinforce that negativity. You still have standards, but, but you need to do them in a positive way. And you need to model consistently the behavior um, that you're espousing. In terms of um, the generation thing, uh, younger people do communicate differently. This young man, his name is Paz. Um, he, uh, he, well, he, he never reads an email. <laughs> it, it's always text. And so, I, I mean, I know how to text, but that's not my go-to uh, form of communication, but it is with him because that's the way he's the customer. And so I have to communicate the way he does. So a lot of it has to do with uh, modeling whatever it is you preach and then learning how they want to communicate and you're probably going to have to adjust. It's not them adjusting to the way you want to communicate. It's you adjusting to the way they want to communicate. And I think that's such an important lesson. I think it's, you know, a lot of times there's a feeling of why do I have to change? Why can't they change? And I think to be really successful, you have to have that flexibility and the ability to be able to determine how other people communicate and how other people want to be communicated with. And that's true both internally or externally. So I think that's excellent advice. Um, so Gary, you have made it to our lightning round. So our <laughs> lightning round, we like to get to know our guests a little bit better. These are 10 fun questions. First answer that comes to your head. I promise I try to keep these as appropriate as possible. Um, so are you ready to do lightning? Oh, I'm ready. Okay. When you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be like my dad. I respected my dad a lot. It turned out I didn't know it then, but he was a manager. So he kind of modeled in a way. Um, I just wanted to model his behavior and it turned out I did. I became a manager, not like him, but in that mold. So that's all I knew really. What is your favorite book of all time? Changes. I read about 48 books a year. And so it, uh, <laughs> it, uh, it changes with the year. I can't say I have an all. I will say probably the best novel I ever read is uh, The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner. He, he tells the same story four times from four different points of view, starting with uh, a person who has a mental problem. He calls him an idiot. And um, and then to to the end, we're in a in in the third person. So it's it's one of the most fascinating books I've ever read. 
Very cool. Where would you go if you were invisible? Well, I'd sit at the Mojito office for a while and just see what <laughs> they're going to do back there all day. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Um, what is the first thing you notice about somebody when you first meet them? Do they make eye contact and are they engaged in the conversation? Use one word to describe your computer abilities. Good enough. That's two words. <laughs> That's close enough. Um, if you could teach any grade or subject, what would it be? I would teach at a high school, uh, probably seniors, and I would teach, um, I would use some format to teach life skills and that's what i'm trying to do with this young man that uh, i'm mentoring now mostly by facetime now because we can't meet in person but life skills like uh, like writing like uh, conversation like paying attention to people um, managing your finances um, that kind of thing so i i might not call it that but i would use a class for seniors in high school to uh, learn some life skills I love that. What is one food you would never give up? <laughs> my aunt's German chocolate cake. Oh, that's my dad's favorite. If you had access to a time machine, where and when would you go to? Uh, the Vikings. Let's see what uh, let's see what they're doing there with the. Uh, and I say that because I'm. Uh, one of the, one of the ways I developed some skills is through the Toastmasters organization, which I think you were also a member. Mm -hmm. So I used it. As it happens, I'm, I, I'm in a Tall Tales contest next week, and I have a Viking hat, and I'm going to take myself back to Viking times and um, and see what happens. That's awesome. <laughs> Scary. I mean, it seems like a dangerous time, but I, I'll go with you on that one. How do you like your steak cooked? <laughs> medium well and what is one item you could never live without <laughs> i don't think i have that item i think um, i think there are more important things than items so i would uh, okay. i would not there is not there is no such item that's a good answer um, so you have also made it to the end of our lightning round. So thank you so much, Gary. It was so much fun talking to you today. Is there any um, just closing thoughts you want to leave our audience with? What I really loved about the material handling industry is that you got to see how all the other industries work because you everybody out there in some sense was a potential um, customer for the kinds of things we sold. Now, that's not true of every material handling company, but you don't sell to another material handling company generally. You sell to a logistics company or a grocery or whatever. So the wonderful thing about the material handling industry is that you get involved in all the other industries out there because they need your stuff. And as I used to say to our employees, the great thing about this industry is that we help people get the right stuff to the right place at the right time with the right training and you know that's a pretty good thing to do awesome i couldn't agree more well thank you again gary thank you for taking time to speak with us today we really appreciate it you've been listening to mahita talks with sherry altergat we'll see everybody next time thank you